This program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to Fun Men About It it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izet. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, so we're deep into New York City Cider Week. CiderWeekNYC.com. Actually, just... Yeah, it is CiderWeekNYC.com, isn't it? You're right, Chris, my bad. Anyway, um... So we kicked it, actually, Chris and I kicked it off at 61 Local, which is a wonderful bar in Brooklyn, um, with the celebration of the first anniversary of Descendant Cider, which is New York City's one and only urban cidery. Our friend Jaheel Maplestone, friends of, of, friend of ours, uh, we met in the New York City Home Brewers Guild, uh, who actually, I think he was at uh, a meeting that our guests spoke at years ago, which <laughs> might, might be directly influenced by that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, there was a wonderful cider, um, Lower East Cider Festival. Yesterday, they closed off Orchard Street right in front of Wasail, which is the cider bar in New York City. Um, absolutely fantastic bar and, and eatery. Um, and Steve Woods of Farnham Hill Ciders and Louisa Spencer brought you guys brought down some apples. That's our mm-hmm. guest. We'll just do an informal Welcome introduction. Welcome to about it. We're so excited <laughs> you guys are here. And Jaheel brought his grinder and his press, and you guys did some fresh fresh ciders, which was super cool because I definitely think that's not something that many people in New York City get to see. Oh, it was good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, welcome to the show. Thanks very Thank much. You. Pleasure to be here. So, you guys have both Poverty Hill Orchards as well as Farmingham Hill Cider. Poverty Lane. Poverty, Poverty Lane. Lane. Poverty, Poverty Lane. Lane. We, we try to kind of low-key the Poverty Lane phrase because yeah. the conjunction between Poverty Lane and alcohol, you know, you think poor farm and all the bad things. <laughs> so, we emphasize the hill when it yes. comes to the cider. Or hippie. It's a real or hill. Affectation, but it was actually the name of the road way long before we were born. Yeah, probably so. right. yeah, yeah, it really was. It wasn't our fault. So you, I read about you in a food and wine article back in. I think I looked. I tried to look it up today. I think it was two thousand one. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I was living in Southern Illinois, a very rural part of the country um, at the time, and I happened to be taking a trip to Boston. So I went. I found a wine store that that stocked your. Uh, cider, and that was the fir- my introduction to kind of this modern orchard cider. Wow! Um, and then I probably didn't have any real what we'll call real cider. Let's you call guys- it that. That's a good. That's a good real cider. <laughs> awesome. Until I went to London, actually, uh-huh. in two thousand seven, and now it's a whole different story. Living, especially living here in New York City and in New England, in the um, Hudson Valley, we have mm-hmm. a lot of access. But w- talk about how did you guys get started? Two thousand one, nobody was making cider like you guys were in a, in America. That's we- true. Steve, you want to take the well, you want to cover the crack <laughs> the crackpot years? How many times have you told this story, Steve? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, um, I I've been growing. I've been working on that orchard since the '60s. So I, we've been and Louisa first showed up in 73 or something. I mean, we, we've 
been there in one way or another for a very long time. And we uh, we were grower packer shippers um, of Macintosh and Cortland and all the other stuff with the little retail business and. You know, we um, had no real inclination to change anything. Edible apples. Yeah. Yes, Yes. edible apples, yes. The classic round red fruit of New England. Um, And and it was just really by happenstance. We got to know, I particularly got to know a lot of uh, apple growers and uh, cider makers in the U.K. in the the very early 80s. And uh, of curiosity, we decided to do some grafting trials both of cider varieties and then also what you might call heirloom varieties just unusual varieties that had fallen from favor or that had never been grown here before um but we were thinking about a little retail sideline or something to our main business the result was that we had we got some horticultural experience with a couple hundred varieties over the course of something like a decade during which decade, the 80s, I mean, the, the business that we had always been in, well, in our view, fell to pieces. That, that is, it became much more difficult for myriad reasons to make a decent living growing, packing, and shipping apples in, uh, the, uh, in, in northern New England. And the, the main thing, uh, not, the main, not the main reason for this, but... We had always gotten a premium for the quality of our fruit, and that was what made it possible for us to grow in a place where production efficiency is very low compared to places in the world or the country where the apple trees disappear over the curvature of the earth. So for us to remain competitive in anything like a wholesale business, we had we had to grow something of high inherent value, which we had been doing. There were Macintosh, but we got enough of a premium for Macs and Quartz that were really stunningly good. And so, and very, very small. So, so much, so small that most of the things we grew then you couldn't market now, right? Right. Yeah. No, the craziness started with the sort of eye appeal craze. Also, produce managers, I think, got harder and harder pressed because um, they 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 used to say people buy by the each, meaning the bigger the apples they could get, people came out for six apples. But it was priced by the pound. So their advantage was with the bigger and bigger fruit and with, with the stress they were under, they wanted it waxed. They wanted it to look the way it does in photographs, which fruit doesn't do, you know. When it comes off the tree, there's a bluish film around it, which has nothing, nothing to do with chemicals. It is the natural waxy coating of the apple. It's part of its, you know, constitution. That's why when you rub it on your sleeve, it shines up. Anyway, so all of this was became more and more uh, impossible um, for for the the greatest Macintosh in New England, which is what we were growing. And we could, with all these cosmetic changes, it became impossible at a, a supermarket for me. And I, I mean, I know a little bit about apples. I, to distinguish by looking between a really good apple and a not so good apple. I mean, the, that wax and all that stuff takes away your ability to make qualitative judgments, except aesthetic judgments. Right. But we knew we couldn't cut it. And we went back and forth about all sorts of things, including just quitting. But we uh, um, <clears throat> we didn't like the idea of retail, partly because we are so 
badly suited for retail. If we had gone entirely into retail, we both had to say, "May I help you?" Every day of our life, <laughs> somebody would die. Um, but it also the, the main objection to all of these things, including the so-called value added, was that they all presupposed that the fruit that you were growing didn't have the real value. That the value was either in the jams and jellies you were making, or in the re- case of retail, in the show you were putting on, and the you know the st- the it's store agritainment, right? And the yeah. store. That, so you wind up running a retail place um, and smelling like scented candles in order to argue argue to yourself that you're actually growing apples for a living when in fact your living is really coming from something completely else and that was that was none of those things were satisfactory to us and they were partly unsatisfactory no chiefly unsatisfactory because they also did nothing for the land Right. Meaning, if you've got a retail operation, you don't need any more orchard than you can see from the driveway. You can buy the rest of the apples. And we're growers. And so we we just thought, it, we're not going to keep doing this if we're just doing a kind of show of growing. And then it occurred to us that we had this very, quite well, longer than anybody else, horticultural experience with all these weird varieties. And we had actually been able... Not to perfectly determine, but to make a pretty smart judgment or informed judgment about what, among all those hundreds of varieties, we could grow to a very high standard in our climate and soils and conditions. And uh, yeah, we, it wasn't. We didn't just wake up one morning and say, "Hey, let's do that." But we we decided to start taking out acres and acres of very productive Macintosh and replanting them with apples that nobody in this country had ever Brown heard ones, of. orange and, ones, and they, flat ones, many, tall ones. Many of which made your mouth turn inside out if you ever bit them. Yeah. Um, then were you making so cider at this time? No. No, we were. Well, I mean, no, we'd always. Hold on. Made. Where did those carboys on the basement steps come from? It seems to me when we just had yeah. branch here, branch here. Where did you start with the carboys? I we had small children, so my um, branch here and branch there was that it was when we were yeah. when we were when we were doing all the grafting, right, right. And then we planted the first orchard. Was, I mean, a small orchard, about a thousand trees in uh, eighty nine, mm-hmm. and so we got a little tiny bit of production off that in the next couple of years. But all those, I mean, we made some un. Unbelievably disgusting cider. <laughs> I mean, that, that's when we really learned. I, you know, I, I still say to people when they start cider that you should never start making more than you can afford to throw out in the right. first year. And th- that's really actually very strong business advice. But the other thing, even to the home cider makers the other day, you know, if you've made something in a carboy and you've just had a blast doing it, you've been caressing it along and whatever, and it tastes worse than old Milwaukee at whatever, still three ninety nine a six-pack or something, pour it out and buy old Milwaukee. You, know, <laughs> you don't have to drink the stuff. And it was when we had, you know, the, well, tens of carboys in the basement of filthy stuff, we realized that we were had made the move toward making more than we could possibly drink. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but yeah, that was that was I guess eighty nine, ninety, ninety two. Yeah. Ellen was there in ninety two. You started to look for more orchard. You started to look for more orchard very soon after yeah, that. All right. of a sudden, the whole idea ballooned. Yeah. As as you know, as the traditional regional market shriveled and the grocery stores turned into a vicious battleground, and you know these beautiful snappy Granny Smith and Gala came in from other hemispheres in the middle of the winter, and all the Macs came out of cold stores looking kind of sad. Yeah. You know the writing was on the wall. It had been on the wall for a long time. And all over New England's beautiful developments were going up, with each with a gnarled apple tree in the backyard looking all quaint, picturesque. Why? Because people who'd been on that land for three generations were selling out for crazy money and surfboarding for the you rest could, of their you lives. You could so, go to a housing you know. development and, and 
if you stood back and squinted, you you could see the rows of apple trees that in the, every, in the was, yards. In the yards, there are apple trees in every yard, but they did, they weren't in the same place in every yard. They were in the line they had. You yeah, right. spin so they in. cut out every <laughs> third one. Every, you know, they cut they cut out. Well, yeah, it was four, very funny. Five, yeah. Spotty line, spotty orchard line. Yeah. Going to uh, your those knowing what you know now, going to those homebrews real quick. What do you think? Why do you think they were? Undrinkable or, or gross for the first time rounds. What are some don'ts on, on the start? And we'll get more into it. Well, I mean, some of it had to do with just not understanding the fruit. Um, some of it had to do with, you know, curiosity about yeasts. We've got pretty firm views about that now. Um, some of it had to do with temperature. It, I, I mean, it wasn't, it, it, a lot of it had to do with the thing that we have, have the hardest time dissuading home brewers from doing, which is fiddling with this stuff all the time. I mean, if somebody's a brewer wants to play with his toy every night, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, they're, they're sort of constantly sticking their fingers into things. <laughs> right. Cider making is like winemaking, and the stuff that's most reflective of the fruit, you know, is made by people who get it going right and then just get out of its way for quite a long time. And I was in that stuff's way all the time, yeah. you know. So um, I can't really attribute it to one thing or another. Sure. I can attribute it in large measure to knowing nothing about what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, when did you start going to the wine seminars and making friends with all those uh, hotshot winemakers? About then, 92, I yeah. think. 92-ish. I mean, we, we realized, what we re- basically reckoned was... When we decided to do this, we'd already started the horticultural thing. I reckon it was going to take us about a decade to really figure these apples out in the orchard, but that's what we do. So we reckoned we'd get that one. But we knew it. It was also, you know, if you, if you grow apple trees for a living, you've got to take the long view, uh, yeah. you know. So you're sort of, it's, a, it's inherent in doing it. We weren't, we, weren't, we weren't urgent about this. We knew what we were doing about right. that. But we also, I also reckoned it would probably take, and it, this, this was kind of right also, that it was going to take about a decade to learn how to make cider worth a damn at all. And, um, but that they could be concurrent, that you, I could be, we could be studying the, the second thing while fiddling around with the first. And right. we made way more, well, expert, whatever you want to call it, at the first, being long-time apple growers on the same piece of ground. Um, but uh, we, I, yeah, I we, we I studied a bunch of cider making in the UK, a little tiny bit of French stuff, but the the real the real help came from the U.S. wine industry. I I, I just started going to you know winemakers um, meetings and things and you know all over the country, and they they found some wonderfully helpful very able people who are some of whom are still friends and colleagues and it's my pleasure to be able to say that we've i've actually given some of them advice in the since then but <laughs> meaning i was i've been able to return a couple of the favors but they were they were very generous with what they knew to a complete neophyte uh, i'm very grateful for that so. so we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right more right back with more for men about it for men about it <laughs> what about it
Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Welcome back to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are here in the studio with Steve Woods and Louisa Spencer, owners of uh, Poverty Lane Orchards and Farnham Hill Ciders, and we're so excited to have you guys in town and to, to uh, call you friends. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you are so. so <laughs> it's very I, nice to be here. I have a question quick about, before we go back to cider making, How so when you are graft um, and another variety of apple onto a tree, how long does it take typically, I know it varies depending on the variety, to get into a, an apple that can be used? It doesn't depend on the variety very much at oh, it all. It doesn't? It depends on the length of cyan, which is the, the grafting wood. It depends on the vigor of the tree. But um, if you if you do it right and you know what you're doing and you've got good cyan wood and good stock, um, you can get... You can sometimes get flowers in the second or third year, not the following year, but the the, uh, the year following the graft, but the year after that. Mm-hmm. You can certainly get them in the third year. Now, useful useful for understanding the variety. I mean, you, you would have to graft a huge amount of wood to get real production in that time. But uh, although, you know, I mean, I, you, it, it's possible to, um, we don't do this, but but with uh, high-density plantings with a couple of grass per tree and really forcing strong growth in the first year and then actually making the thing turn into a tree very close to its brother or sister, the next you can get it. You can get serious production in a few years. But uh, for trying things out, there's no quicker there's, way to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and for, we, you know, we tell people, well, if you're if you dying to have a, an orchard, Put in some, figure out what rootstocks you need. You can start growing the rootstocks, and then you can graft onto them once you've trialed a whole bunch of things. I, I was talking to a woman just the other day. She said, I want an orchard. I want an orchard in New York State. I want to decide. And I said, well, try to buy a piece of land with some old trees on it so you can do some grafting and check out some apples while everything else, which, you know, it takes forever, all of this. Yep. And anything you can do to telescope it a little bit. It's, it, but grafting is, to anybody out there who even imagines doing this, it is such a blast. You get one book, you get one knife, and you just go to town, and it's really amazing how much you can learn. When you cut yourself, you cut yourself very badly. Yes, but that's not really the point. That's good. It's no, but it's also. I mean, the, it's also the best best way. It's not just the fastest way. I mean, if you've got settled down trees, as we did, uh, trees that have been in the ground in a piece of ground for a fairly long time. <laughs> You take away all the other variables if you, if you do your trials by grafting and do the same sorts of grass from, from variety to variety. I mean, when you, if you plant a new orchard, you've got the effect of the rootstock, you've got the effect of the ground, you've got the effect of the... There's a sort of new tree effect, a young tree effect that is pretty profound. Um, so if you're really trying to figure out how a variety will perform in a particular growing circumstance, there's nothing like a grafting knife and an old tree to discover that. So let's talk about how you guys make your cider. So I had mentioned we 
Real cider. Oh, boring. Boy, oh. you think we are boring we already. You mash them up. <laughs> I know. take the apples, we <laughs> mash okay. them up, and walk away. We let them <laughs> suffer. So, for instance, you guys do, you ferment a lot of single varietals. No. No? You do all your blending? <laughs> okay. Here we you go. You do a single, Kingston Black. No. Once, a year. Once whatever. A year. What do you mean no? <laughs> Don't say no. That's true. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, whatever. It's true about the Kingston Black. But that's one. Okay, you that's can, just uh, one. Kingston Black is the only variety that we deliberately planted to be a single variety cider, and everybody is all jacked up about Kingston Black. And I know that you know it's. A, I mean, it's a fairly old, not nearly as old as people think it is. Variety from Martock in the south of. England and Somerset. Um, <clears throat> its fame in the UK was f- for being one of the few varieties that had a sufficient blend of acid and sugar and tannins to make a decent but structured variety all by itself without blending. Um, and it's a very odd cider. It's very—I mean, it's nice, but it's—it's—it—we it, don't—we don't. Uh, some people. I, I mean, I'm sorry. A lot of what we, is coming is all opinion, but. but we don't blend with it. We we think it's uh, we we think it's just too weird to blend with. So we're we're interested in it. We're not planting any more of right. it. And the only other things we've we've fermented on their own um, are are chiefly to help us blend at the end. So we'll do things like golden russet, which is a fruit bomb, um, and Wixen and Asopus Bitsenberg and Ashton Bitter. I mean, I'm sorry, Ash means kernel, not Ashton Bitter. Which are which are all equally acidic, but the acid comes in very different packages. It's all malic acid, but everything else is the other stuff that comes with the apples, and they have very different characteristics. The finished ciders, we're, we're not; those aren't aimed at a at a bottle on their own. We've, we've done that a little bit, but they're they're basically aimed. I mean, this is Lulu's had a great deal to do with this. She every time we get get excited about some little batch of something we make down at the cider room, she says, "If it's any good, put it in the cider." Yeah, you know, make good cider. That's a, that's what we have to do now. Partly right? because you when know. you're out front with your little, you know. With your little smile and your little patter and so on, having to explain yet another incredibly geeky cider is right. <laughs> just too much work, you know. And um, and Kingston Black at least has a name, and I want to speak up for our Kingston Black. Okay, it is amazing. Like it is amazing. I like, I like it's that. so hooky and so kind of <clears throat> perverse and sly yeah. and weird, and makes all kinds of um, you know semi ethical suggestions. And it's a really cool, funky, <laughs> hormonal, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> piece of uh, cider making. And when it's good, uh, this year's. We're, we're not. We don't exactly worship what we have in the barrels well, at the have, moment, but well, the stuff but, is that we the, the the very small number of cases that are sitting in barrels now, I think, are going to be, gonna be all right. Good. Yeah, because there is a case of black thing, and if it doesn't do its thing, then the heck with it's it. It's totally you know? useless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your ciders are generally between six and a half percent and seven and a half percent. How much does it vary for single single varietal? Apples, as far as how strong they can get. You gotta stop saying varietal as a noun, okay? Because variety is a noun, and the cider people should not adopt the great great affectation Ah, of using the word varietal as a noun. It's a bloody adjective. So you try to say variety. So the varietal varietal characteristics of our varieties varieties are widely varied. Gosh, I've forgotten the question. Variants of sugar content <laughs> oh, and fermentable oh, yeah. sugars, from and year. therefore, and and, uh, uh, and they, they, they vary enormously uh, from variety to variety, but um, and somewhat from year to year, and other things vary from year to year. I mean, and from field to field, even in the context of our 
somewhat spread out orchards. I mean, or we we're all around Lebanon and Plainfield, New Hampshire, on very similar land. But uh, you know, we've got things scattered over about seven miles. So we and we we notice difference between the fields. But uh, but the, the the main difference is the varieties. Um, the, the difference in the sugars in within the context of of the what the variety, what we expect from the variety, that is the growing season. Doesn't Kings of Black usually do eight and a half, just as a matter of course? Uh, yeah, they yeah, they do. Most of most of the most of the cider apples will ferment out not to six and a half, but to but to higher than that. Except the early bittersweets are usually in the high mid sixes, okay. and then all the rest of the stuff is around seven and a half. And some of the single varieties, Golden Russet, will go, get into the eights too. In our soil, I know places where I mean, down south they mm-hmm. get them into ten, up to ten percent. By down know. south. He's talking about Concord, New Hampshire. No, 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 no. no. I'm talking about Virginia. No, Girl, Chuck, what are you Chuck, Chuck got 10. No, he did not get 10. He did not get 10. Oh, dear. Dream. Oh, dear. That's a story no. I won't tell anymore. No, then. I would not. Well, I don't know. I, I remember it. Well, never mind. You remember it This is a bit too anecdotal. Too anecdotal, dear. So when you, so when your apples start coming in and you're, beginning to press so yep. you're blending before you're pressing different varieties together yes and blending and fermenting together how do you possibly go about choosing that blend um what well what we're trying to do the objective is to put these blend batches together let me back up for just one sec most of these varieties that have been propagated for a really long time for making cider were propagated because of what they brought to a blended cider. I mean, that's another... This is in, in the UK now. There's, I think it's pure affectation. There's this deconstruction that's trying to imitate what I think was a damaging deconstruction with wine. I mean, suddenly using varieties that for centuries had been grown because of what they contributed to a blend and trying to get them to stand on their own, which is admittedly akin to what, I mean, Bordeaux, the three, the three grapes of Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, they, their whole period of initial development, that, I mean, for like almost a thousand years, was to be together. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's the new world that decided to split them up and grow them in a really hot climate where they could get the alcohol up to 14%. So maybe you didn't notice the wine is as good as it would be if you blended them all together. Anyway, the, these varieties, <laughs> the, these varieties are, are <laughs> sorry, the, these varieties are much, are, are it's, it's more exaggerated. There is no point with a lot of these things. I'm trying to make them stand on their own. Almost every really good cider apple, by our judgment, is lacking something. All the bittersweets are way short on acid. They just don't have it. So unless you're going to take malic acid out of a bag, which is a pretty lame thing to do, you, you've got to find an acidic variety that will get together with them. And we've, you know, whatever, over the years we've learned, I guess I've learned, but others have learned up, up there as well, that the... Uh, to, you know, to recognize characteristics of individual varieties and to recognize differences between years. And if you have a year, some of these things are wicked biennial. If you have a year where you, you made a bunch of, last year, a bunch of wonderful cider with Yarlington Mill as a sort of base bittersweet, and you have zero Yarlington Mill, well, major, and to some extent, Harry Masters Jersey and Summers at Red Streak share some of the characteristics of Yarlington Mill. And you, it's not that one will stand in for the other, but that you can, you can get some of those, you know, some of the same 
I mean, some some of well, some of the some of the tannins are hard and harsh, and some of them are soft and round, and some of the things have, are fruity in one way, and some of them are fruity in another. And we just you just sort of, I mean, this I don't know how to learn this, but by doing it, right? Um, yeah. We but, write an awful lot of things down. I mean, yeah, the, the whole blending thing down. involves. There's about five people who taste together regularly, and when the fermentation batches now, feel free to politely I'm, correct I'm, me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> um, but the uh, when the fermentation batches, you know, settle down and some time has passed and so on, we start tasting through everything and just producing the language that we think will allow people to talk about how some things go together and some things may never and so on. And all this hyper precise stuff about what kind of tannin it is, what kind of funk it is, what kind of stink it is and all that really comes in handy. It, it sounds as ridiculous as the most ridiculous wine language and, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we would not have imagined ourselves going into this degree of kind of purple prose to make. But Well, we it, started we, we started entering the world of purple prose 15 years ago. Now. I know, it's, but it's, if, I mean, it's pretty if weird. you had asked so me, long, 20 years you know, ago, you how, how, what kind of pond muck yeah, right. we're picking up, <laughs> right, right, you know, right. we would oh, police, even you know, as much as, you yeah, know, yeah. relatively recently. Yeah, but now we've right. gotten really, you know, endlessly, endlessly, endlessly geeky about the sensory analysis, and it's very useful. And we've got, you know, like memorial phrases like Nicole's people who like each other and Brian's Western omelet and Brian's bubblegum, people who nailed something. We're all kind of gripping, trying to figure, what is that? What is that? And somebody will say, clam chowder. And everyone goes, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but when you have stacks and stacks of these books, it starts to amount to something. Right. And, and all, this, all that really tiresome wine language about the saucy little wench with a head of chocolate or whatever that people love to ruin dinner parties with. <laughs> right. um, that all initiated as an effort of professionals to talk to each other. You've got, I mean, you're, you're talking about something that's essentially subjective, but you can't stick your nose into a glass and say, boy, that smells good. I wish it smelled, you know, better. You know, I mean, you, you know, you've got to have some yeah. way. And so, it, if we're if we say mango or dog shit or whatever to each other, it doesn't matter whether we've got the descriptor exactly right. What matters is whether we understand fairly precisely what we are saying to each other, right. so that we can have a discussion about what to do about it, whether to whether whether we're getting what we want or what we're not. And the fact that Lulu and Nicole and I are three of the five people who started doing this together about 15 years ago, innocently, having no idea how important it was going to be, and sort of shyly, I mean, we thought this is so geeky. I mean, it just seemed really weird to be sitting around using all these words as they came. But we, we, we really did learn the importance of emptying your mind and just saying what comes to it when you stick your nose or something. And we have this extremely rigorous approach of nose, meaning the smell, taste, which is both the taste that you can get, that you know, the acid and bitterness and that umami and stuff. But we, 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 that's not what we're really concentrating. We're ta- concentrating the full, on the full experience in your mouth of taste. And then feel, mouth feel, and then finish, how it goes away. And that's, we go, you know, nose, taste, feel, finish. And we've got, as Lula says, six feet of notes on this stuff. But, you know, and what else is cool is that you, you know, eventually, if you read the wine press, not that they got it from us, but they arrived at similar descriptors, equally wacky, but the exact same thing. So you know that there are other circles people sitting around and the idea that you know the human brain has kicked up 
the same terminology for entirely separate experiences, and that probably there's some real you know overlap there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So you know, a bunch of people in a barn in New Hampshire and Robert Parker, (laughs) our vocabulary kind of overlaps. Hello. There's a beautiful. There was a beautiful overlap in New York. Lulu mentioned. Nicole's people who like like each other. That that was we, we realized a long time ago that the word sweat or human has no meaning. I mean, sweat. Do you mean your neck, your armpit, your crotch, your foot? Are you worried or are you chasing a girl? You know, or, or you know, or are you hungry or are you working out? I just described like way over a dozen different aromas. So right. you got to be more precise, right? And so we, we started trying to be precise, and some of that was pretty funny. Like, is the farmer worried? Is it the farmer's butt? You know, <laughs> but but there's one day we had a particularly uh, what we would call hormonal, um, you know, kind of very sexy smelling cider literally and Nicole said people and we all looked there like yeah right people great thanks she says people people who people who like each other people who like each other very much indeed and obviously she meant sex yeah. and you know we and we laugh but we you know PWLEO has become a descriptor that we you know when it comes up we use it and she and I used it in one of those Astor Center things <laughs> a, a couple of years yeah, ago sure. and a couple of wine friends of ours told us that, that about six months later PWLEO was popping up randomly <laughs> in the New York wine world in the yep. mouths of people who hadn't the slightest but, freaking but idea what it meant. Yeah, but that's we different from what I'm like, talking yeah, yeah. But that's different from what I was saying which is that yep. an yes, honest yes, confluence yeah, of, yeah. of you know yeah. yes. But, yes. That, that is an overlap no, that's straight no, you know, that's, that's, that's straight just theft a, you know, it was just, it, well or straight appropriate trickery by yes. trickery good by theft, good theft. Yeah. sharing 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 and caring very much indeed am I yelling no no, it's no. all good. We only have a couple <laughs> minutes left. I have an important question. So, what is the what is the uh, shelf life for a decent cider? I mean, oh, there's right. a, there's a lot of parallels. How do you feel about aging cider? Yeah. Okay. When you age anything, when you age wine, a wine worth putting down, so called, the judgment is that what you give up will be compensated for by what you gain in the time. And right. so you are, and normally you're giving up at least some of the sort of fruitiness, the lighter fruits. And giving them up for some measure of complexity, and I don't really feel like going into what all those things can be, but um, but it's really stupid to not acknowledge that you're giving something up. And most, I mean, I think there are a lot of wines that people put down that they should just drink. But that's again, that's that's a it's an opinion. I, but the, the ciders, the things we're striving to achieve in these ciders are one of the main things we're looking for is brightness. You know, we, 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 yes, the tannic structure is absolutely critical to our ciders. I mean, they, they'd be kind of, I don't know, empty without that in our view. But, but there's a lot of what we call high fruits, which are sort of, I mean, it's just again and florals, I, the florals, and the high, high fruits are you know things like tropical notes and things, you know, mm-hmm. the, things that we don't want people to name or anything, but that when they come into your face, they kind of combine it with a with a brightness and cheeriness that is basic to what we're trying to achieve. When you put the stuff down, you d- indeed do, it, you gain complexity, you get a, a sort of oxidative, uh, I mean, you get up oxidizing, uh, oxidized aromas and flavors, you get more breadth, the tannins evolve, but you give that stuff up. And we just don't think you get paid. So it's not that I think that, um, that, that cider is 
that old ciders are bad, but right. I'm always, if I taste something that somebody's aged, I always wonder what it was actually like before they thought they had the brilliant idea of aging it. Now, Eleanor, the other, t- today came up with some... Eleanor, uh, this is Eden. I'm sorry, Eden yes. Ice Cider. Yeah, yeah. She I came know. up with, a, with an ice cider. I've, <laughs> I've argued this with them. She had an ice cider today that I thought was, that was old, that I thought was brilliant. So it's not, this is not absolute, but for our ciders... Yeah, ice cider is a different thing to it. Ice cider is a different thing. But for our ciders and for, you know, all the ciders that we actually like of other people's, I'm not just talking about U.S. ciders, Mm -hmm. you're you're just, you're just, you're you're not getting paid well enough for what you're giving away. But you can hold it for three years if you hold it right. I mean, it's not as though you've got to drink it day after tomorrow or else. No, it's not like That's ultimately my question because it's just more of a confession than a question. I've I've accidentally, uh, I I have three bottles of of your cider from from two years ago that I Mm -hmm. forgot that I had. Oh, that'll be fine. And I'm like, you know, what do you feel about that? I'll drink it either way. It hasn't been in the trunk of the car or in a hot attic or anything. Our apartment's kind of hot. It wasn't cool the entire time. Well, if you don't totally like it make mule marinier uh, wait, wait uh, let's go to what that what is that mussels oh yes, oh, yes. yes. I mean it's, it's ordinarily done with white wine but it is to die for with dry cider so you know if you're not thrilled to pieces with the, what it tastes like then cook something amazing with it the, the other thing is if your sink drains are plugged it's really <laughs> it's it is not the it's no is good, for, whatsoever. good for cleaning it with the acidity <laughs> right. what is the general ph of, of uh, cider well uh, this is a the ph of the bittersweet apples that we're growing is very often is almost always over four it's like four 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 three which is just you, you can't even it's so high that you can't ferment it by itself as i was saying before safely uh, the pH of the th- something like Wixen is like three one. Um, we aim for something over three and a half, sort of in the three six to three seven range. Sometimes they wander up a little bit. Their stability drops a bit as they, as 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 the as the pH rises. Um, right. But uh, I mean, as you probably know we're, we're we're fans of acid, but we're fans of all the other stuff. In the acid, with the acid as well, so, mm-hmm. and so you have to get. I mean, if you want the bittersweet characteristics, you have to deal in one way or the other with their high pH. So our ciders, we, our targets usually three six, three sixty five, mm-hmm. or something. But we're not horrified when we find that it's a little higher or a little. And lower. that accents the high fruits too, which, that's, which is pretty great. That's that's, the, that's kind of the, yeah, that's yeah. the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's not the pH; that's the strength of the acid. I mean, it's a, it's the actual real the, the total, type of the acid. Total, the, the total acidity. Well, the type of acid in apples is malic, pretty much, unless it's undergone malolactic fermentation. And unlike grapes that have got tartaric and citric as well, with, with, along with the malic, right. most of the acid in an apple is malic acid. So it's it's the package it comes in that that, that determines what you know what, how it expresses itself. So we're going to wrap up, but if you are in New York City for Cider Week, you guys have several more events going on. <laughs> Don't you are <laughs> not going to ask me what the events No, are. no. Oh, you can go can to ciderweekNYC.com and find yeah. out yeah. everywhere that Lulu and Steve will be this yeah. week. Um, and you might see us out there as well. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thank you so, Thank you. so very, very you much. You are both a wealth of knowledge, and it's super exciting to have you on the show. A wealth of something. Okay, also, <laughs> look, look for Nicole LeBon, who's our, yes. you know, our master palate and nose. She's going to be doing some events in the middle of the week. 
um, Farnham Hills, Nicole. So, uh, you know, find find that girl because she's something. Yeah, Nicole. find Otis Wood yeah, and, find Otis and, Wood and, and so. Brian Bishop as well, yeah. who both done extraordinary work on yeah. all the stuff in the last in The, last the point days. being that we geezers are not the whole deal. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's actually a very – I know we're winding up, but we, we thank you on behalf of a, a very able crew. And we've been, we've been wicked lucky. We've kept – a lot of people for longer than we thought yeah. they'd ever stay with us. And, and this has been a particularly good. hellacious harvest. So it, it has you know, been whatever good. whatever yeah. they can hear in the love department, they're, they're, I yeah, hope they're here. They're the, so, they, so the field crew, everybody, they're they're amazingly able and, and willing folks. So, but they're all engaged in the cider in one way or the other. Awesome, that's great to hear. Yeah. And Corey, who we'd known. Well. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah, all of that, man. Um, uh, if you want to hear more about uh, Poverty Lane Orchards and Farnham Hill Ciders, you can go to povertylaneorchards.com. And uh, thank you to to our producer, our co-producer, Rachel Jacobs, uh, Liz Smith, and Jack Inslee for producing the, for uh, engineering the show. Thanks to our radio network. And, and thanks to our spi- sponsor, our sponsor Cider, Cider Week, Cider NYC. Week, NYC. Yay. For men about it over here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.